Hello everyone and welcome to Not Ready for Rhyme Time. I'm your host, Taylor Woodland. I'm late again on a day. But you know, it's been a very busy, interesting week on Friday in the span of six hours I was laid off from my job and then got engaged (laughs) so been a little busy so I had to postpone my episode if you follow me on twitter at taylorwoodland5 I usually give updates so you know if I'm gonna be late with episodes since I'm currently jobless uh that probably won't be a problem for a while (laughs) But enough of me bringing you down, let's get on into our feature author episode for today. This is actually book four in a series. It is called A Stag in the Shadows by S.E. Turner. It is currently free on Kindle, if you want to get it, on Kindle Unlimited. The synopsis for this book is, as I'm reading it off to Amazon right now, is... In the kingdom of Dorondal, a young man lies buried in the snow. Is he dead? Is he alive? No one knows for sure, nor cares. Close by, in the darkest depths of Break Pass Ridge Mine, lives Sagan Hishkai, self-appointed king of the mountain. With a lust for power and an insatiable greed, he rips families apart and forces them to work for him in the grounds of Heathskin Hall. Prisoners are chained up in the dark tunnels of the mine, digging for gold. A terrified girl is locked in a tower, awaiting a fate worse than death. But someone is planning a revolt. Someone Sigan Heathkin should be extremely fearful of. A young man left in the snow to die. We'll move on into our excerpt. Prologue. He remembered it well, that very first day they had sought out the cave. The shoreline was jagged with nooks and crannies, and a snarl of rocks tried to hinder them as they sought out the deepest cavern. Inside a hollow... The air was cold and damp with the strong smell of sea salt and littered with copious amounts of debris. Some squabbling gulls had followed them from the town, but soon disappeared when the two men settled on an appropriate cave. The mouth was a hole in the rock, barely wide enough for a man to get through, but he remembered how Bouchon had a nose for these things. He had said they would be hidden from view and as it opened to the north, they would not get too hot during the summer months. As usual, Bouchon had been correct in his assumptions, and the small passage opened up into a huge cavity with an underground stream and a wealth of natural carvings born from the monstrous cavern roof. Though when the sun filtered through, these carvings resembled mythical creatures that only appeared in the fragments of one's nightmares. And as the shadows played tricks on their eyes, the disfigured gorgels took on life, enhancing characteristics, and appeared to silently move around. That was four years ago, and for the past three years, this labyrinth of darkness had become his home. He saw no one. He had become quite malevolent in spirit and onerous in thought. Bouchon would have loved to know what he was doing in there and what his plans were, 
But the young man wouldn't confide in him now. The cave had given him all he needed. His friends were the shadows, and his allies were the wraiths. Why would he need anyone else? Humans were a mutant force, he had decided. On many a dark night, with his fire shimmering through the chilled, vacuous air, the tongues of heat cast a perfect light and wreathed the wraiths in robes of red, orange, and yellow. Some slithered and silvered in the light, others became jeweled and gilded, while many seemed to shudder as the flames reached higher and wider. Sometimes his imagination ran wild, where the gorgiles were the souls of witches burned at the stake, writhing and curling, skin blackening and melting, their very souls dripping away, and their ancient spells pooling into forgotten ashes. And here they stood, damned forever in cold gray rock, protected in the lair by dragons, each one of them fearful of human contact. It was a momentary assumption, and he laughed at the preposterous idea. He remembered how, as a young boy, he was petrified of the dark, terrified of the unknown, and scared witless that witches would come in the dead of night and devour him, that dragons would search him out and breathe fire on him, but then he was told that they lived on the other side of the world and he would be safe in the protection of his father. What a lie that was, because his father hadn't protected him, and he had never seen a dragon or witch in all the seven years he had lived on the other side of the world. He had now faced his demons, and those terrors were firmly in the past. He feared nothing or no one. Instead, he embraced the serenity and peace that he found amongst the protective cavernous stones. But today, something was different. Something was amiss. The morning air was dark with the smell of rain, and the dragons peered out from their stone surroundings as if they were looking directly at him. A cloud seemed to hang over him today, ragged and black as his cloak. He paced restlessly, muttering to himself, and the crinal of witches trembled when he brushed past them. He was agitated about something. He did not know what. He just knew that he needed a change. After three years of living in the cave, something had to alter. Outside, he heard the waves crashing against the jagged rocks, eager to pass the entrance of the cave's mouth. The wind picked up pace and threaded its way through the canyon into the Dome of Gorgiles, where it curled around the hundred faces and breathed energy into them. The fire glowed with the life-giving elements and rose up higher, burning brighter with every passing minute. He caught his breath for a moment, unsure of what was happening. He heard a rustling, and then an even fiercer light bloomed. He shielded his eyes and felt his breath stuck in his throat. His own hand gripped his neck, and the other protected him from the glare. As the roar of power settled down, it went pitch black. What witchcraft is this? His voice quivered. All he could hear was the sound of his own breathing, loud, anxious, agitated. He calmed himself. The light returned, and out of the flames stepped a life form. He didn't know what it was. He backed away, stumbling, slipping, falling. 
Hot coals ignited the being. The black charcoal image stood there, burning, as ash around its feet lifted in a frenzy and swirled around the body, before disappearing into the orifice of a throat. The blackened skin became young and even skin-toned. Long golden hair grew from the crown of the head, though shrouded in a fine gossamer. He could see that the face was beautiful, and beneath the body was perfect. A naked woman stood before him, veiled in plumes of smoke. Fiery amber eyes pierced his own and didn't stray from their focus. Cornelius, I have watched you grow into a man. I have seen the changes in you, but I know you are about to leave this place and go on a journey. Cornelius pinched himself. He shook his head, not quite believing what was in front of him or what he had just heard. You are not the frightened boy anymore. You are strong, and you are courageous. I can help you become even stronger. How? His voice was small and weak. The gods of darkness protect you, and I can give you immortality. Cornelius laughed out loud. Ha! The fire soared. The wind howled. The amber eyes glared. Do not mock me, she bellowed. He swallowed the laugh and spoke quietly. Why would you do that for me? Because I want something in return. He braced himself, fearful of what she would request from him. What can I give you? He heard the whisper. Her eyes burned brighter. The plumes of smoke clung to her curves. The breeze curled around his torso. She bore into his very soul. He turned away. Look at me, Cornelius. Their eyes met. It is written that a warrior will charge through the kingdoms and seek vengeance for those whom have been slain and tortured. This warrior will be born from the seed of the living and the womb of the dead. He dropped his head sideways in astonishment. Her name is Sansara. Her purpose will be to bring peace. She will be able to take many forms, but in this life it will be of a human. His rhetoric was mocking. That is impossible. There is too much evil out there for one person to take care of. Even a 10,000 strong army of powerful bowmen and a well-established cavalry could not do what you propose. The fire blinded him. The wind froze him to the spot. He frowned. I want you to father me that child. She saw the pink cavern of his mouth. If you do this for me, then I give you my word. No ordinary man will take your life. How do I know you are speaking the truth? The fire roared again. The waves snarled foam around the cavern. The wind raced through the gloom. How can you take care of a child? What will you do? Where will you go? He continued despite the wrath. That, that is, is not, not your, your concern. concern. The, the child, child will be mine and given everything she needs. I can assure you of that. Her voice grew thin. But I grow weak in this life form. I am tiring. Now do we have a bargain? Cornelius sat in the tavern for the first time in months. 
Give me another flagon of ale! He caught the passing serving girl by the arm. Are you sure, sir? I think you have had enough for one night. I'll be the judge of that, you useless wench. Just do as I ask. The girl rushed off to get his ale, and Cornelius, immersed in his thoughts, looking down at a torched piece of paper born from the ashes. Beware a stag in the shadows, for he has the power to slay you. End of Prologue Chapter 1 The darkness pitched his eyes. The cold had become a numb presence that was slowly devouring him. He was far down in the gorge, that the pair of hunting eagles didn't even notice him. He lay there face down, the snow covering him like a shimmering blanket. The crystallized ice pierced his cheek like daggers, but he couldn't move. He tried to straighten his legs. One was bent right back in an excruciating fashion. He groaned several times and rolled over onto his back. His legs snapped back into place. The cloak fell away from him. He felt for blood. There was none. He pressed his fingers around his torso to detect a wound. Again, there was nothing. He looked up into the sky. The eagles continued to swoop and soar on seraph wings. The majesty of their power commanded awe. The sun caught the tip of a feather and turned it golden. He turned his head to shield his eyes. Still, they didn't see him, and still he searched for answers. Why was he here? Who was he? Was this his death, or was it hell? To those that had seen it or heard it, the mine at Break Pass Ridge was like no other place in the kingdoms. A vast rock face that filled up half the sky, pale gray in color, and a natural wonder. From miles away, it looked like any other colossal formation, proud and unbroken, stretching into the distance, where the sprawling, rolling hills and pockets of alpine plants had covered it in a protective green winter coat. But close up, it bore a never-ending scar, an evidence of brutality. In most places, centuries of wind, blown dirt, had pocketed and scoured it until it resembled an unrecognizable fossil, while in others, it exposed cruel, curved ribs from giving up its entire contents. Lifeless, craggy cliffs spewed out of the woodland, and splintered slabs lay awkwardly on broken boulders like rotting corpses, while sheets of slate protruded from the flesh of the earth, resembling a hideous gray skeleton. Each jagged edge and pointed face cried tears of unbearable suffering, of disappointment and death. For the many poor souls who had cleaved and clawed at the structure over the previous decades. And now, the ghosts of more than a thousand men, women and children, who had given their very souls to break past Ridge, in a futile effort to seek out its precious cargo, could see to their horror that they had been searching in the wrong place. A strange noise woke him. He hadn't heard anything for such a long time, but now his senses were alert. A branch snapped. A man cursed. They were walking. 
Why are they walking, he thought to himself. Why are there no horses? Over there. I think it could be him. At freaking last, I'm freezing my nuts off out here. Come on, then let's get him bound up again and get out of this God's forsaken place. There were two of them, and they were getting closer. It doesn't look much like him from here. Maybe he's dead. No one makes it this far anyway. I don't know why we've come out here. You know why. If we go back empty-handed, we'll be flogged. We'll have to take the corpse back with us to show the master. Wipe the snow off him, then. Cornelius sat up coughing and sputtering before the gloved hand got too close. By the gods! You gave me a turn. Thought you'd be dead. Cornelius pawed at the snow, frozen to his face. It's not him, came the disappointment. No, it's not him. The master won't be happy. You know how he likes to set an example to potential escapees. That one must be dead, though. No one survives out here. The wolves or the bears will have got him by now. So I'm not dead, then, Cornelius interrupted their exchange of words. Well, if you are dead, then I must be the devil's kinsman, and I certainly cannot be him, he let out a ruckus laugh. <laughs> so who might you be? Cornelius looked puzzled. He frowned and shook his head. He struggled to find an answer. I don't know. The two men laughed. You don't know who you are, said a gruff voice. No, Cornelius looked around him. No, I don't. Where am I? The two men laughed again. You are on the other side of the world, my boy, where the witches and dragons live. And the bears and the wolves, they both roared with laughter. This is Break Pass Ridge, and you are a bit of luck. A sinister smile spread across the gruff voice. Cornelius looked puzzled. We've lost one escapee, but gained another, so not so bad day's work after all. I thought the master would thrash us for letting that one escape, but bringing this one back will put us in his good books again. The larger one of the two had a deep scar embedded in his cheek that went from the lobe of his ear to the corner of his mouth, giving him a rather lopsided grin. His ruggedy complexion matched his gruff voice. The smaller one had several teeth missing, and a high-pitched tone matched his weasel-like eyes. The high-pitched tone nodded his head in agreement. "'How long you been out here, boy?' Again, Cornelius couldn't answer. "'I don't know. Really, I don't know.' The two men looked at each other and shrugged. "'No matter. You are alive and strong.' Goodness knows how you got here, or how long you've been here, but that's of little consequence to us. You are our prisoner now, and will work for our master, the King of Hezekin Hall. I've never heard of him, said Cornelius, witheringly. Not many have, I can assure you, but soon you will fear his very name. Your skin will crawl if he summons you, and most of the time you will wish that you had died out here. The words rolled off the gruff voice like it had been said a thousand times before. Why is he so bad? What will I have to do? You will find out soon enough. Come on, let's go and meet your new master. He was tied up with his hands behind his back and another one round his neck like a lead. He didn't know why he had to be trussed up so viciously. There were two of them after all, but then again he had 
heard how they spoke about the king. They were clearly terrified of him and couldn't risk losing another prisoner. It took forever to work their way through the small, dense forest. The tracks were narrow and ill-defined in the dim light. Cornelius heard his own shortened breaths as he weaved around protruding trees and pushed through the matted undergrowth. He gritted his teeth as a thicket of hawthorn clawed at his skin. Without his hands to move them away, everything whipped at him. Here the night was an eerie place, punctuated by harrowing sounds that seemed worse in the dark. The howl of a wolf, the screech of an owl, the wail of a fox. Every now and again, a smaller nocturnal animal skittered away, a flash of fur becoming a shadow. A squeal disappeared into the night. That would be a meal for something else. Why do we have to go this way? There must be an easier route. Cornelius was tiring already. Well, there is, my boy. But escapees always come this way. They think they will be hidden and go unnoticed. Besides, we don't want to show you the easy route, now do we? You might try to escape. He heard them snigger in front of him. Still, the snow continued to fall, numbing the bones right down to his very soul. Struggling for the duration, the guards had to drag him under the arms when the going got really tough. No horse or mule could handle these conditions. It was difficult for a man, and nigh on impossible for a trussed-up one with acute amnesia. They carried on, and all he could do was stumble and follow, trying to keep his balance within their tracks. Up steep slopes and down into stream beds, through black thorn bushes, battling their way through the undergrowth with hostile brambles fighting back. Above them, the waning moon was rising and cast her shadowy light, and now he could see the trees were beginning to thin out. They approached the lower slope of the mountains that stood at the hub of the kingdoms. Here the view was spectacular. High peaks and steep ravens were covered in snow, and under the brilliance of the stars in a three-quarter moon, they gleamed and shimmered like shards of light. Cornelius sensed they were nearing the end of the journey, as the wide valley opened up before them and their pace began to slow, and right ahead of them was the immense stone bulwark of Break Pass Ridge Mine. The cliffs that bordered each side of the valley loomed closer as the route narrowed, Scattering crag gathered about the towering walls as though they were frozen jewels, and at its very core stood a huge portcullis draped in crystalline splendor, with huge icicles that glittered and shone in the starlight like carved diamonds. But this magnificent spectacle paled in significance when he realized that the rock face was more than just stone. It was studded with gigantic boulders of solid gold. Guards were walking the rampart, and a searchlight beamed round every few minutes, creating glittering shadows and monsters out of everything it touched. Even the strategically placed catapults and cranes stood on the guise of monstrous corvids in supernatural light. A metal gate loomed up out of nowhere, wielding gilded spikes that looked like giant fangs welded onto its exterior. How on earth could anyone escape from this place, he thought of the man who had probably died. It's an impregnable fortress. 
Now no one can get in, let alone get out. More guards hauled the gates open and gawped at Cornelius as he was pushed through. Have you caught the prisoner? One eagle-eyed guard called out. No, the wolves got him to be sure. No one can get far with his injuries. So what you got there? We found us another slave for the king. He looks half dead already. Just how the king likes him, and no one will notice him in the dark. Raucous laughter echoed through the courtyard. The grating sound of the raised portcullis sent shivers down his spine, while the constant cackling and shrieking of mocking men raised the hackles on his neck. Come on, you. Not far to go now. His two captors gripped his weakened arms and half-carried, half-dragged him through the courtyard into the ghost of a hallway. It was a silent chamber, save for their footsteps and the scuffling of his reluctant feet. The long building was partitioned into many smaller rooms, each reached by an open doorway at the front. They were plain rooms, with no curtains on the windows. The light from the moon partially lit up each wall and cruelly exposed iron beds with menacing shackles. He could almost hear the shouts and screams of previous occupants pleading for mercy. The air was now very heavy, with scars of pain and the smell of blood. Even the walls cried tears in this god's forsaken place. Heisekin Hall had quickly become Heisekin Hell. Leaving the ghost behind, he then saw something else equally depraved, and his body froze. Chinks of coal burned in iron braziers at the end of the hall. He watched as a new set of metal stamps were clamped into the branding iron, and the iron was thrust into the red-hot coals burning in the drum. The guard cruelly took his arm, and the other pressed the heated brand into the back of his wrist. The red-hot iron seared his skin. He never moved when the iron burned him. He didn't even blink. Now you've got the mark on you. You can meet the master. Cornelius examined the H still sizzling into his skin. The wicked red glow told him that it would be there forever. End of chapter one. Chapter two. In the heart of the mountain, men walked alone carrying a lantern and a pickaxe. The glow stretched ahead into the dark tunnels and created huge disfigured shadows on the walls. Year after year, break past ridge, slaves delved deeper into the living rock, tunneling into the heart of the mountain, discovering fresh arteries in closed veins where they would pick out precious stones and barrel loads of gold. Sigin Hezekiah made them excavate more and more until the mountain range became cavernous with sores. One day it would crumble, many thought. But if that ever happened, it would take Sigin Hesekiel with it, and end the torture for good. The slaves were always covered in white rock dust. They were hunched and weak, with skin like thin gray paper where they never saw the light of day. But the more they excavated, the warmer it became, and Hezekiah was sure the fire of life simmered somewhere below and once the tunnelers reached it, he would move his main throne room to be next to it and breathe in the life-giving embers every day. 
For now, though, his throne room was comfortable and warm from a man-sized hearth, which roared continuously accompanied with a thousand lit candles that danced and flickered in this reluctant womb. Cornelius was led into the chamber of the mountain king. The spacious room held little in the way of furniture. Its grandeur was manifested in its construction rather than its content. White marble columns rose up from the mosaic floor to a gilded ceiling, and the finest gold-leaf prints lined the walls. Niches and arched windows were patterned with intricate carvings, and silk rugs covered the floor. Dim lamps carved into the rock illuminated decanters full of vintage wines. The servant didn't even look up as he shuffled over to a marble stand. He took a gem-encrusted goblet and poured a claret for his master. Hezekiah sat at a dark wooden table with a platter of food in front of him. He chewed mechanically on a haunch of deer as the goblet of wine was placed at his elbow. A spider in a crack between the flagstones, disturbed by the shuffling, scuttled towards the edge of the room and settled at the base of a large wooden plinth. At the top, a hawk, tethered and hooded, cocked its head, aware of the eight-legged intruder. It flapped its wings and screeched loudly. Hezekiah reached for a catapult, knocked a plum stone in the sling, and hit the spider straight on, then threw a piece of meat into the mouth of the hooded hunter. He turned thirty degrees and fixed his eyes on a large, ancient, leather-bound book left open on a gold-inlay desk. The pages were of the highest quality, waxed vellum, and contained writing, verses, figures, and motifs. It was of little interest to the spider, but the bird had done its job. Hezekiah cocked his head, smiled, and went back to his meal. The starving prisoner couldn't remember when he had last eaten. His body was all wiry muscle and sinew, and his ribs clung onto an even thinner skin. His matted hair and beard disguised the once handsome face. He could feel his mouth salivate and his empty stomach rumbled as the sweet aroma of meat fat and dripping wafted into his sensory glands. Hezekiah, who preferred to be referred as the Mountain King, looked up and pushed his plate away. He wiped his mouth with the back of his hand and sat back in his throne. He nodded to the guards who stepped forward and presented Cornelius to him. I hear that the prisoner escaped. He picked something out of his teeth, looked at it, and put it back into his mouth. I'm sorry, my lord. We searched for miles, but he was nowhere to be found. He must have died in the freeze. No matter, said the king. I see we have a younger, fitter, more able replacement anyway. Yes, my lord. We thought you would be pleased. The king stood up and walked towards Cornelius. His voluminous black velvet robe was trimmed to the collar with the pelt of a gray wolf and settled into nice neat folds when he stopped moving. He was of average height and average build, with a square face and deep-set eyes. His tamed beard and curly hair concealed most of his features and a small crown that was wedged on his forehead. He didn't look old. He didn't look that young either. The most striking characteristic about him was the deep blue eyes that could melt the ice off the top of the mountain, it seemed. And despite the tales that Cornelius had heard, he didn't look like a terrifying org at all. But then again, 
More often than not, they were the worst types, he feared. I am told that you do not know who you are. That is correct, my lord. I have no memory of anything. That is most bizarre indeed. But to be honest with you, it's probably blessed that you don't have any recollection of a former life. Cornelius dropped his head solemnly and nodded. The king's shoulders bounced up and down in a shrug. The two guards knew that he didn't care. You will be working for me now. And although you have heard firsthand about this escapee, let me tell you right now that it is very rare, if not impossible, to escape from here. His still blue eyes glared. Those whom have tried have been severely punished. Cornelius remembered the iron rooms and swallowed hard. And the few that make it to the gates, well, let's just say that's where they remain until the crows have taken everything they need. An unsavory smile lingered on his mouth for far too long. Your room will be on the other side of the mountain. There's still much excavating to be done. You will be fed once a day in the morning. You will be shackled to your bed when you are not working, and you will work sixteen hours a day. You will not see daylight. The flame from the wall lanterns will be your only source of light, and they will go out when you are in your cell. You will wear a loincloth round your groin and irons on your ankles. We don't want you getting too hot or contemplating escape, now do we? A snigger came from the back of his throat. There are workers who will take what you have collected and put it into safe storage. You do not need to worry yourself with that. Cornelius chewed the bottom of his lip and thought, If I remember who I am, will I be able to return home? The king roared with laughter. The fire nearly extinguished itself with his explosion. The two guards tithered in the background. Oh dear me, you are a funny man. Where did you find this one? The rhetoric was not answered. You will die in here. Even if you tell me that you are the emperor of Ataxida, you will never leave here. He shrugged and gave a breathy laugh. He moved closer to Cornelius, and with just a hair's breadth between them, he gave his final orders. You are mine now and I can do what I want with you. His spittle ran down Cornelius's face. The king turned and stood by the fire. He didn't look at anyone. The flames consumed him now. Take him away. Cornelius was led from one damp, cold passage to another, down flights of stairs, round stone-cold walls, and further down into the abyss. It almost seemed to get warmer, though which was some form of consolation in this vacuous mountain city. The flickering candles that lit the way would be put out soon. Then it would plunge into perpetual pitch till the morning again. Noises came and went, crying, sobbing, the sounds of men trying to find salvation. It soon quieted down in the void. Only a few sobs could be heard now. He was pushed into a cell, his clothes were removed, and a loincloth was left on his bed. Shackles were locked into place. His metal door was bolted, and he was left, in the dark, alone. Though he felt blind and vulnerable, the rest of his senses were heightened. The first thing he noticed was the smell. He retched and instinctively reached out for a wall to support him while he recovered. The cell stank of decay, 
feces, and urine. It seeped under his skin. He breathed in small pockets between pursed lips. He would soon get used to the smell, though, and forget to purse his lips. That he knew for sure. He could hear the constant drip of water, and as he focused on it, more drips followed. He imagined them going to an underground cave. He shook his head as a memory flickered. The cave, water, dripping sounds in a chamber. He shook his head again and tripped over a half-full bowl of water. His cursing woke his neighbors. Quiet in there, new boy. My dreams are my only salvation. I forgot where I was for a moment. Curse you! Yes, sleep is where we forget. I'm scared of the dark, a terrified voice whimpered. He inched round the walls with groping fingers, his leg chains doing the very best to wake everyone, and he was desperate not to upset anyone again. A pot for pissing in and a straw pallet was all he could find. It was difficult to use either with shackles on his ankles. When he finally collapsed onto his pallet, he couldn't fall asleep. Despite the exhaustion in every inch of his body, he could still hear the echoes of the keys turning in the lock of his irons and then the grating of the cell door. He now felt worse than any other time of his life. He didn't know who he was or how he had come to be in the basin of Break Pass Ridge in the first place, and how his life had ended up in this gloom. He forced himself to remember a better life, for this existence would send him mad in no time. However, respite and happy thoughts were difficult to summon in this dark tomb. Because the feeling of entombment reminded him of something, or could it be someone, he had witnessed something similar before, but for the life of him he couldn't think what or who it was. He hunkered down against a damp stone wall and listened to a distant drip of water and the monotonous sound of digging from somewhere deep below him. His dreams and waking life had now swapped places. When he was asleep, he could see the world in all its splendor. He was somewhere grand with gold and oxen on every level. He wore luxurious clothes of satin and velvet. He was eating succulent pig and quaffing the finest wines. The blaze of colors in the manicured gardens made him feel warm again, and the smell filled his room with an aroma of honeysuckle and sweet jasmine. But when he was awake and eyes wide open, there were only layers of blackness stretching endlessly in every direction. He screamed out loud for the nightmare to end. If only he could remember who he was. End of chapter 2 that was also the end of the excerpt. I hope you enjoyed the reading of the excerpt from A Stag in the Shadows, book four. I believe the series is called Kingdom of Durundal by S.E. Turner. It is on Amazon, and I will leave you a link for you to find this book. I enjoyed this one. It was very... It was very much a mouthful, <laughs> but it was pretty entertaining. I liked all the description. Thank you, Turner, for submitting. I will hopefully have more episodes for you sooner now for a little while. Um, who knows? I have to be job hunting as well as wedding planning, so it's going to be a very 
very busy time, even though I have no job. I've still got plenty to do. Yeah. Well, enough of me being a downer. Thank you for submitting. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. It was a little longer than usual. I will leave a link in the description of where you can find this book. You can also follow me on Twitter at TaylorWoodland5. Please subscribe if you enjoy this podcast and like this episode. Excuse me. Like this episode. This has been Not Ready for Rhyme Time, and I have been your host, Taylor Woodland. Remember, mind the gap.